Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to today's episode of New Books in History. Today I'll be speaking with Darren Dochuk, author of the new book, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Published by Basic Books this month, Anointed with Oil traces the intersection between petroleum and American religion from the 1860s through to the present day. America's faith in crude, Dochuk shows, often mirrors the country's faith in Christ, turning this resource into a symbol of American exceptionalism. Darren, welcome to this show. Hi, Stephen. Good to be with you. Great. So um, you've written a book on uh, Sunbelt evangelicalism and several edited collections on American religious history more broadly. What brought you to the study of the link between oil and American religion? Well, for my first book, uh, as you just said, uh, I spent time across the Southwest in Southern California researching the migration of people from Texas and Arkansas, Oklahoma, during and after the Depression to Southern California. Uh, And then I charted the way in which their uh, kind of religious and political values uh, were grafted on to a new conservatism that would culminate in Reagan's election as governor uh, and then as president in 1980. So naturally, uh, you know, the more more I got uh, interested in and invested in the study of the Southwest in particular, uh, I was certainly aware of evangelical churches and evangelicalism. That's what I was writing about. Uh, but also kept coming across uh, powerful oil men who were heavily invested in churches, uh, in uh, philanthropy, and in the politics that I was studying. Uh, and at that point, I uh, thought it might be interesting to see uh, how oil and religion fit together. And uh, initially, I thought I would simply follow the money uh, track oil men and just see how they were, uh, how their monies and how their influence were shaping uh, American Protestantism, especially evangelicalism in the Southwest. Uh, then as I got into the project, I, I found more ties, more interesting ties between religion and oil. Uh, and I also, of course, extended the study back all the way to the Civil War. So that's really the origins of the book. Uh, and I also, as I say in the book, Canada, which is the Texas of Canada, really, uh, where there was plenty of religion and oil. And so I, I guess, knew intuitively that there would be uh, lots of terrain to cover. Great. Fantastic. So uh, in the book, you sort of outline uh, different links between religion and capitalism and how that shaped the oil industry. Could you outline for us the different ways that different theological uh, thoughts interacted with particular forms of capitalism? Well, you're right. I, I kind of track that uh, in multiple registers. Uh, I was, for instance, taken uh, with the, the very origins of oil uh, being the 1860s uh, during the Civil War. Uh, that's when oil was discovered in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, and so at the highest altitude, really, uh, the anointing uh, uh, with oil that America enjoys is really embedded in a crucial moment in the nation's history, uh, one of 
crisis and tragedy. Uh, but then as America emerges from the Civil War, uh, of course, it's going to reimagine itself as uh, a powerful nation state uh, with a powerful economy. And that economy is going to be driven in many ways by the petroleum, uh, petroleum industry. Uh, and so going forward, oil is in many ways imagined as the lifeblood of, of a new nation, of a new nation state, one that aspires to uh, expand its interests and influence globally. Uh, so that's that's one way in which oil is uh, really theologized uh, by the nation writ large. At the lower level, lower altitude, uh, as you point out, I'm, I'm really interested in the way uh, ways in which religion and business work together uh, within the oil industry. Uh, and uh, what I am emphasizing throughout, really the dramatic tension of the book, uh, is the competition between two different sectors in the oil industry. We often think of uh, big oil as, as hegemonic and homogenous, uh, but in fact, the American oil industry is divided uh, in really clear ways. Uh, certainly, the first generation of oilmen uh, were wildcatters uh, as, as a whole, in that case, by that, I mean they were interested in drilling wildcat wells, discovery wells, uh, really pushing the envelope of oil production uh, in Pennsylvania. The industry that takes shape becomes quite chaotic. Uh, American oil is ruled by uh, a canon of, of land rights. It's called the rule of capture, which is unique to the United States in that it allowed individuals really to, to chase and pursue and to capture oil uh, at a great pace and on their terms. It was really a great equalizer, if you will. But that produced a very chaotic industry, one that was doing great damage to oil's resources, uh, draining pools and, and pressure uh, before uh, all the oil had been drained. This was a great worry to many oilmen, and one in particular, John D. Rockefeller, comes along and says, uh, I need to bring some order to this chaotic uh, industry. And as we know, he does so through uh, various means creates a large monopoly and basically squishes, uh, squeezes uh, thousands of smaller oil producers out of the business. And those become uh, what we know as independent oilmen, and they are going to move west of the Mississippi at the end of the 19th century and be instrumental in uh, finding unprecedented pools of oil in Texas and California and Oklahoma. And so Subsequently, through the 20th century, we're going to see uh, these two sectors, major oil represented by the Rockefellers and Standard Oil, and then after 1911, the offshoots of Standard Oil. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, we're going to see the independent oilmen of the Southwest. Uh, and it's in that competition that much of the uh, key pivots in oil and oil politics is going to take place uh, during the 20th century. Where does religion fit into that? Uh, well, uh, I pit these two uh, corporate bodies against each other, also in the church, churches and the pews and pulpits and, and in philanthropy, uh, that has also been so crucial to American life in the 20th century. John D. Rockefeller and especially his son uh, are going to be heavily invested in what I call a civil religion of crude. Uh, and by that, I mean they are interested in uh, a kind of an international ecumenism, uh, much like their business tactics of, of broadening uh, influence, uh, they look to do so within the church uh, by expanding uh, the uh, missionary uh, endeavors across the globe uh, and by 
doing so in partnership uh, across denominational lines, in some ways centralizing and consolidating Protestantism itself uh, and propagating a social gospel as well uh, that sees uh, the duty of the Christian to use one's economic and political clout to transform the, the world uh, in preparation for Christ's return. That liberal Protestant mainline of major oil is going to be opposed by uh, the kind of much more radical evangelical or wildcat Christianity, as I call it, of the independent oil men based in the Southwest. They're going to oppose Rockefeller, not just in business, but also in the church as well. Uh, they are going to hold firm to more conservative, kind of fundamental uh, values. They are going to uphold kind of traditional uh, orthodoxies, uh, one of them being, of course, the individual's right uh, to uh, understand scripture uh, and to have a personal relationship with Christ, to have a personal encounter with an active creator. Uh, and uh, again, this being a very fiercely in independent enterprise in its own right, uh, and they are going to support missionaries that preach that gospel. They're going to support churches and build ministries with their money and their influence that are really going to shape the 20th century American uh, experience as well in very profound ways. And it's still that clash uh, that is going to transform American Christianity itself. Fantastic. So you mentioned briefly there uh, Rockefeller's support for missionaries. So I was wondering uh, sort of more broadly how this, uh, this division uh, naturalized American imperialism, particularly towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, speaking of Rockefeller in particular? Uh, just generally uh, the link between religion and oil. Well, the civil religion of crude, as I call it, which really is a Rockefeller inspiration, uh, this, this notion that uh, the power and influence and the financial uh, capacity that oil brings uh, to Americans, to large major companies such as Standard Oil, uh, and the ways in which they imagine utilizing that, the Rockefellers in particular, uh, is to, to again, uh, very much, as you say, naturalize the American imperial project. Uh, and that project is to expand uh, economic interests, uh, but to also do so with a sense of a kind of a civilizing Christianization approach, uh, trying to, uh, again, uh, create the ability of, of humanity itself to be uplifted uh, through modernization, through economic development, uh, but also through uh, appreciation for kind of the essentials of a Christian democracy. So I, I track that in, in a number of different ways. For instance, the Rockefellers' uh, influence in China in the 19-teens and 1920s is absolutely essential uh, to reimagining uh, the missionary project there that American Protestants associated with the mainline have, have brought to that uh, developing society. Uh, I also look at uh, mid-century, uh, the work of Aramco, which is, of course, as we know now, the most profitable oil business, the most profitable company in the world. Uh, well, it is an offshoot of uh, standard California and Texaco and a number of other major oil companies that come out of really the Rockefeller ore. And while, of course, Aramco is most interested in, in drilling for oil in Saudi Arabia in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, and into the 1960s, uh, the, the corporate culture itself, I show, uh, in many ways embodies kind of this, this blending of kind of uh, this missionary impulse, if you will, uh, through capitalist uh, endeavor and through the spread of uh, Western values uh, within the 
corporate culture of Aramco are operating uh, numerous managers and executives who themselves uh, are very uh, uh, kind of adhere to the liberal Protestant ecumenism practiced by the Rockefellers uh, and within their own work in building up Aramco and selling Aramco to the world, uh, they are doing so out of their own kind of faith-based uh, initiative. Uh, so those, those are a couple examples, and, and I hope that, that helps clarify uh, for you just uh, you know, how that works its way through the American imperial project across the 20th century. Mm, great. Thanks very much. Uh, so... Uh, in the late 19th century and early uh, 20th century, we have a sharp backlash against Rockefeller's monopolizing tendencies. And so I, we have muckraking journalism, etc. I was wondering if religion played any important part in this uh, sharp turn against Rockefeller and the sort of broader national culture. Uh, it sure did. And, you know, throughout uh, our, our history of, of oil, uh, uh, there have always been those who have seen this material resource as a curse, not a blessing. Uh, and so in, in addition to kind of tracking the, the contestation between these two branches of oil and the church, uh, I also track really a, a third kind of a- aspect of, of this story, and that is the way in which critics of oil uh, in their own way uh, kind of bring their moral fervency and their, their theologies uh, with them uh, to their muckraking, to their critiques of oil. Uh, at the turn of the century, of course, turn of the 20th century, the, uh, the power of muckraking journalism, of, of, of kind of this uh, highly sensationalistic, but also uh, morally charged journalism uh, was carried out by a number of figures. And the most important for the history of oil, of course, is Ida Tarbell, a very fascinating individual, one in which I was really drawn to in my research and writing. Uh, she has been written about before, uh, but no one really kind of worked through her own uh, diaries and sources uh, to show how, uh, even as she brought her moral fervency to her journalism, she did so also with some clear kind of theological insights uh, coming out of a Methodism that was socially active, socially aware. Uh, she eventually uh, evolves into more of a, of a Quaker belief system. Uh, always, though, looking at the power of Rockefeller and Big Oil uh, as a blight, not just in American business, uh, but a blight in the church. It represents uh, a a ruthlessness. It represents a destructive force, destructive to nature, destructive to humanity, including her own father, who was a small oil producer, squeezed out of the business quite tragically by Rockefeller. Uh, And so she she wears her, 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 uh, her kind of religiosity uh, she shoulders it uh, and, and, and channels it uh, for her muckraking journalism, through her muckraking journalism. And of course, uh, in, in, in doing so, is going to redefine uh, the oil business itself by uh, awakening Americans to uh, what she deems the evils of the Rockefeller empire. Uh, and ultimately, that's going to funnel into politics, into the courts, uh, and Standard Oil, as a result, uh, will, by 1911, be forced by the Supreme to disband, to, to, to uh, uh, get demand now at this point, both in public opinion and in the courts, uh, to dismantle the monopoly uh, and the uh, evil monopoly that Rockefeller represents. So uh, moving forward into the sort of the New Deal era and uh, World War II, 
Um, I was wondering how both the civil religion of crude and also wildcat Christianity, as you as you call it, influenced the emerging idea of an American century, and also other de- kind of parallel developments like modernization theory and America's expanding influence in, in global politics. Well, uh, certainly the 1930s, 1940s are a crucial period for this. Uh, we know the uh, quite famous, of course, uh, article that uh, Henry Luce publishes uh, just at the beginning of World War II, uh, in which uh, he calls for an American century to take root. By that, he means that it is time, of course, for the United States to shed its isolationism and to uh, become internationally engaged, not just internationally engaged, uh, but to take the lead in that. Uh, it is now incumbent on America uh, and Americans to look at themselves as a leader in the world. And again, that, that resonates deeply with uh, the Rockefeller family and the Rockefeller wing of oil. Uh, they too, of course, are going to see uh, liberal internationalism as a project that America, uh, that the United States needs to lead going forward. Uh, and so uh, that kind of philosophy uh, gets connected very directly to the power that American oil brings uh, in its international engagement. Uh, I mentioned in the book, it's, it's quite instructive, I think, to, to note that uh, a month before Henry Luce published this very famous, very uh, important article, uh, he spoke to uh, an association of American oilmen, uh, and there uh, charged them really with the task of extending uh, kind of liberal democratic values uh, to the rest of the world to, to sell, uh, to, to use oil and oil monies, to use oil exploration and expansion of the oil business as a means to, to modernize and develop uh, what he considered undeveloped uh, regions of the world. And of course, that's going to become important as well late 40s and 50s, uh, as the United States is not simply trying to uh, sell this gospel uh, of uh, human uh, humanitarianism, human uplift and global development to the world uh, on its own terms, but it's also going to be, uh, of course, very anxious uh, to shore up uh, its, its interests abroad, to protect its interests, protect its allies from expanding uh, 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 communism as well. And so the Cold War, of course, is going to heighten heighten this uh, initiative. Uh, so I hope, does that does that clarify? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so just looking a little bit more at uh, Wildcat Christianity and Texas uh, during this period, how did oil interact with things like Pentecostalism, uh, the rise of the prosperity gospel, and that very quite distinctive religious culture that's, that's brewing at this point? Well, I mean, one of the more fascinating turns in the book, I think, at least for me, and, and it was certainly a turn in the research, was uh, what happens in East Texas in the 1930s. Uh, we, of course, know nationally what's going on in the 1930s, the Great Depression, uh, which is uh, destroying uh, much of America's uh, rural hinterland, as well as the city, city life, uh, economics of that. Uh, but here, uh, in 1930 itself, at the very dawn of the Depression, in four counties in northeast Texas, the poorest counties uh, in this state, at a time of great poverty everywhere, uh, experiences uh, uh, an unprecedented oil strike uh, in the east Texas fields. It's the largest field 
uh, most voluminous field discovered up to that point uh, in the entire in the entire world. Uh, and so, throughout the entire decade of the 30s, there is going to be uh, an explosion, really, of oil drilling and oil activity across this region. Why else does this matter? Well, the major oil companies are going to be hesitant to send their uh, their geologists into this region. They do not believe that the strike, uh, at least initially, uh, is anything but uh, kind of an accidental thing and, and something that is not going to yield anything much. Uh, so mm-hmm. it is going to allow these uh, independent oil men, uh, already prominent in Texas, to be the first on the scene. Uh, and there they are going to really uh, expand their uh, economic political power uh, in in really profound ways uh, throughout the 1930s in a way that's going to transform American politics. And again, we can talk more about that if you like. Now, how does this affect religion? Again, uh, wildcat Christianity, very much alive and well by this point. Uh, But here in East Texas, this is a place of of especially heightened, tense uh, evangelical fervor. Uh, This is going to get uh, kind of uh, linked to uh, the oil business itself in, in, in ways that are uh, have never been really before. Uh, already kind of evangelical, already fervently evangelical, wildcat Christianity now is going to be uh, kind of uh, embracing uh, a kind of a, a hysteria, if you will, uh, a, a wildness uh, that is uh, you know quite quite new uh, already uh, to this sector of, of oil. You mentioned Pentecostalism, for instance. This is a region where Pentecostalism. Uh, is already prominent, uh, but the spectacular arrival of oil, but as well as the damage done by oil, the, the ways in which human bodies uh, are uh, damaged by the appearance uh, and the spread of the oil industry in this region. Fires, uh, a common occurrence, death, a common occurrence. Uh, there is a sense within this booming cycle uh, that also uh, oil is something that needs to that religion can offer meaning and, and hope uh, and healing in, in this moment of, of great upheaval. Uh, and so the notion, for instance, of healing becomes very important. Healing services are, are a very common occurrence uh, in, in East Texas at this time. Uh, that is particularly uh, important to the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, and also, again, this notion that uh, the poorest of this region are now uh, have within their means the possibility of great riches. Poor churches can now tap into the into the oil monies of the of the region and enjoy this new prosperity. This is God given. This is something that can be used for the furtherance of the church. And and so this kind of prosperity gospel, something we're more familiar with perhaps in more recent days or recent years, is something that I think emerges uh, anew out of East Texas in the nineteen thirties. Uh, several scholars, uh, including yourself in your in your previous book, have sort of pushed back the uh, explanation of the rise of the religious rights sort of into the 1950s and 40s. Um, how do you see your your account of of the link between oil and religion feeding into that narrative? Right. Well, it, it does. Uh, it is important uh, in a number of ways. Uh, I'll maybe just highlight a couple of uh, I won't say necessarily interventions, but I guess we could call it that, interventions in scholarship on, on the religious right. Uh, first of all, yes, the timing of this is, is important. It tracks it back. Uh, it does especially, you know, kind of uh, connect the roots uh, of the religious right to what is going on in the 
1930s, for instance. Uh, and uh, that has been talked about elsewhere, including my prior work, kind of this, this uh, distrust of the federal government, uh, really kind of capturing uh, the hearts and minds of, of evangelicalism across the country, fears that with the New Deal, uh, we are seeing the expansion of the federal state, uh, which is in turn uh, reining in the uh, kind of the abilities of, of individuals to live life on their terms. And this is, again, how evangelicals are seeing it. Uh, they are fearful that with uh, the large state, federal state, we also see socialism and secularism creeping into the country. So this is a, a national phenomenon in many ways. And it's driven also by evangelical businessmen who are worried about what the, the New Deal state is doing uh, in terms of empowering organized labor, uh, as well as reining in, as they see it, uh, the interests of the free market uh, and of businesses. Uh, but what I would add to that is, again, what exactly what happens in East Texas at this time. Uh, no businessmen are going to become more powerful uh, within the church than oil men. And that is thanks, again, to the great wealth that many wildcatters experience and enjoy in the 1930s. And so they are going to be able to empower institutionally uh, uh, kind of a, a religious right network that will extend itself well past the 30s, of course. Uh, and secondly, I guess uh, what is important about the 1930s and this clash is that it is over uh, land regulation. It's over the ways in which the federal state tries to bring order once again to a chaotic oil industry in the East Texas fields. And so this fight is going to be about family values, but it's also going to be a fight over fuel values, about who gets to control uh, production, who gets to control the means of production and manage the industry. Independent oilmen want to protect their independence and do so uh, at the cost of, of, of uh, big oil, major companies, and big government. Uh, and that that sentiment is going to carry throughout the post-World War II year, uh, years. And, and so this, this second intervention, I think, is an important one uh, if we want to try to understand, for instance, uh, evangelical uh, right-wing politics in the 1950s, the fight over who gets to control the offshore oil in the tidelands, uh, a battle that uh, brings Eisenhower uh, into the picture in 1952 as the candidate, the Republican candidate, that will protect the interests of Texas and Louisiana and states' rights to this offshore oil that will also protect uh, the independence rights to, to work those fields. Uh, Billy Graham and uh, evangelical preachers across the Southwest are going to join this fight on behalf of states' rights. Uh, that's crucial, uh, and this is a, a battle. This is a way in which a religious politics of protest uh, is, is really driving uh, key turns in, in petroleum itself. Uh, and I could talk further. I, I, I could give you, of course, the example of the 1970s, and perhaps we can return to that. Uh, but in any case, those are some of the, the interventions uh, trying to make the religious right uh, can't be understood unless we uh, extend, again, this, this timeline, but also uh, draw uh, the quotidian kind of uh, factors of, of energy and environment uh, into our calculations as well. Mm, fascinating stuff. So... Uh, looking at the sort of the, the 1950s, 60s and 70s, how do the social movements of that uh, era interact with uh, the oil industry? I'm particularly thinking about uh, the civil rights movement and the rise of environmentalism. Uh, well, for sure, of course, those movements are going to bring change uh, on, a, on a massive scale. 
American society. Uh, oil is, is going to be very much at the heart of the clash. Um, so, for instance, civil rights. Um, you know, here, the, the companies that are going to get attacked the most uh, are major oil companies uh, because they uh, are most heavily invested uh, internationally. But the oil industry as a whole, I point out in the book, uh, is the whitest of all industries in the United States. Um, up until the 1960s, mm-hmm. I believe the workforce in American oil, uh, only 3% black. Uh, and that is a, a statistic that extends uh, really across the entire history of oil. So there's a way in which this uh, is already uh, a racist uh, enterprise across the board, whether independent or major oil. Uh, so oil as a whole is going to be uh, come under attack by civil rights activists, people who are going to see the oil industry as racist. Uh, they are going to uh, uh, carry out boycotts, for instance, of, of uh, oil companies uh, at the pumps. Uh, Sunoco, uh, led by uh, the Pew family, is going to be one of the first oil companies to be boycotted by African-American protesters. Uh, so domestically, uh, the industry is, is going to be uh, one of the corporate sectors most targeted by civil rights activists. Uh, and again, for, for, for good reason. Uh, when we think internationally, uh, major oil companies are going to be uh, active in uh, Africa, uh, places across the globe that are now uh, decolonizing and are being reclaimed really by their citizens uh, as nation states. Uh, Angola, uh, across Africa, of course, countries emerging at this point. Uh, and within that kind of political context, uh, international oil companies, Gulf Oil, Texaco, uh, S- Standard New Jersey, Standard New York, uh, are going to be targeted uh, by those people uh, as uh, evidence of, of, of Western influence, of Western evils, or evils mm-hmm. of capitalism uh, within uh, our, their own homes. So uh, they too are going to uh, attack uh, American oil uh, on that basis. So civil rights, uh, decolonization, all of this uh, is really uh, kind of changing the way American oil itself can operate uh, in the 1960s. The the second movement you mentioned, the environmental movement, Uh, of course, the 1960s and early 70s seems to be a time of unprecedented crisis in oil, Uh, oil tankers uh, spilling uh, their materials uh, in number of different, along a number of different shorelines, uh, along Cornwall, for instance, but also most famously or infamously in Santa Barbara in the late 60s. Uh, and so at this juncture, uh, these environmental disasters brought on by oil uh, are going to awaken the environmental movement here in the United States uh, in a way, again, that, that couldn't have been imagined even a decade prior to that. Uh, oil will be seen once again as a hellacious curse. Uh, on the planet and on humanity, uh, and so will be the ultimate symbol uh, of, of, of really an America gone wrong. Uh, and so uh, environmental activists will, will target oil companies, again, with a special fervor, uh, and as a symbol, of, as, a, as a whole, uh, through the 1970s, uh, oil will be deemed, uh, again, once as I say, all that is, is wrong with America at that juncture. Super interesting stuff. So, um Shifting our gaze to the, the 1970s, um, there are sort of two 
related questions I want to ask you about that decade, which, and the first one is, uh, how did the kind of declining confidence of America and the diminishing sense of American exceptionalism affect uh, the, the, the relationship between religion and the oil industry? Well, again, America's, uh, the United States' kind of possession of oil and been throughout the 20th century, of course, oil is a global story. It is, uh, there are other, of course, uh, nation states heavily invested in this business. Uh, but oil has a special hold on the American soul. Uh, and the United States as, as a whole also enjoys supremacy in oil that seems to be, through most of the 20th century, unquestioned. Uh, the 1940s and 1950s, uh, with global exploration, uh, major oil companies are enjoying great uh, discoveries and wealth that are going to come out of that. Uh, that begins to unravel in the 1960s, uh, once again, thanks to decolonization, thanks to the rise of other oil-producing states in the Middle East, Libya, for instance, uh, Venezuela and South America. Uh, those nations, those societies are going to want to take control of their own commodity. Uh, and so all of a sudden, uh, major oil, American major oil, uh, is going to start to feel the effects of that, the backlash against them, but also the diminishing returns uh, in many regards. In the 1970s, the energy crisis, of course, is going to make this a much more pronounced problem for major oil. Uh, Saudi uh, Aramco even is going to start to, to fall under the control of, of Saudi leadership rather than U.S. leadership. That's going to culminate in the final takeover of Aramco by Saudi Arabia in the 1980s, early 90s. Uh, and so, uh, once again, the oil, the, the gas consumer back in the United States is going to feel the pain as well, the pain at the pump, uh, as OPEC uh, dries up oil prices uh, through an embargo, for instance. Uh, so all of this is, is kind of uh, undermining the supreme faith uh, that Americans had uh, in their kind of international engagement, uh, and an engagement that was in many ways tied to their own kind of control of oil uh, and the economic wealth that that provided. Uh, and that registers also within kind of the civil religion of crude, within the Rockefeller realm of Protestantism. Uh, there no longer is the same confidence uh, that uh, oil, oil monies can help Christians, American Christians, transform the world in their image. Uh, and so by the 1970s, the civil religion of crude itself uh, becomes uh, uh, attacked and, and, and begins to dismantle. Uh, and with that, a, a faith, uh, again, in a social gospel of transformation. Mm, okay, so my, my second question about the 1970s is this is the decade where we see uh, an obvious fracturing of the New Deal order, the post-war liberal consensus, and then the rising power of the right and a kind of sharp rightward turn culminating in the, the election of, of Ronald Reagan, of course, in 1980. And so how does the, the narrative of uh, wildcat Christianity feed into this, this term? Well, I think in very important ways. Um, what's happening in independent oil in the 70s uh, itself, well, uh, amid the energy crisis, uh, Americans, again, are going to become wary of big oil as they see it. And here they're registering that with uh, uh, an understanding of the major oil companies. They're going to uh, come to believe that major oil companies have put America in a 
a tenuous spot internationally. Uh, they are convinced that it's major oil uh, that has caused the energy crisis of the 1970s. Uh, and so uh, that, that is really a culture of crisis that independent oil men can step uh, into uh, and uh, become much more politically uh, powerful. How so? Well, independent oil men uh, have always focused primarily on domestic production uh, because of their limited means. They have not been able to, to work abroad uh, as major oil companies. Uh, and so uh, they uh, embody really an America first energy program. And that program now becomes more appealing to the American public. Independents are saying, look to us. We are the patriotic Americans uh, that will take care of your economic needs. Let us drill uh, on domestic soil with more uh, fervency. Uh, and we will be able to uh, uh, guide America out of this energy crisis, uh, energy crisis of the 1970s. Uh, many of these independent oil men uh, are themselves devout evangelicals. Uh, many of them, of course, are uh, supporting churches uh, and supporting emerging uh, religious right causes. Uh, and so here, uh, what I say is the kind of the family and fuel values get merged together uh, to create a more politically powerful wildcat Christianity. Uh, and so I, so I alluded to earlier, we know about the rise of, of Reagan's religious right in the 70s uh, because of abortion, for instance, opposition to abortion, opposition to the ERA, opposition to gay rights, and all of that is essential and, and important. Uh, and many of the oil men that I look at within the wildcat Christianity that I talk about uh, are themselves wanting to shore up traditional values, pioneering family values of yesteryear, and they are going to pour their money into religious right, uh, social politics. Uh, but they're also wanting uh, the churches of the Southwest, they're also wanting evangelicals to join them in the fight uh, against heavy federal regulatory uh, oversight of oil. They're going to speak out against Jimmy Carter's energy plan, uh, which again calls for a reduction in oil, calls for greater regulation. Uh, and uh, in that way, they are going to expand their fight uh, on behalf of the Reagan right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's important, for instance, it's exactly 40 years ago uh, next month that Jimmy Carter delivered his, his uh, what would become known as the Malay speech, in which he uh, kind of chastises the nation for its over-reliance on energy, oil in particular, asks for more conservation, uh, asks for more regulation. Uh, that would become a rallying cry for independent oilmen across the Southwest, uh, he uh, will anger them in the way that he, again, speaks against oil. Uh, and they will, uh, in turn, embrace what Ronald Reagan has to offer. Reagan is going to uh, tour the Southwest, campaign across the Southwest, and there at large churches and religious gatherings, he is going to espouse evangelical social values. But he is also going to uh, preach to petroleum kings and promise them that he will deregulate the, the West that he will uh, get the federal government out of environmental protection and allow independent oilmen once again to work the land as, as if it is theirs. And so that is the message of America first. That is the message of, of the fuel and family values uh, at the heart of wildcat Christianity. And it's no wonder that he, he wins them over in 1980. Uh, and Reagan, of course, becomes uh, the face at that point of this, of this new Republican right. Fascinating. So there's a, a uh, 
attention, as it were, in modern American conservatism between sort of economic liberalism, deregulation, etc., and the social side of things, the social cultural side of things that emphasizes tradition. And so, do you feel that uh, your your narrative of of the oil industry and its relationship with religion partly explains how that circle could be squared by modern modern conservatism? Uh, I hope so. I hope that's a takeaway. Uh, I think you know, we, we've seen other works emerge that are uh, you know, kind of uh, problematizing that, that sharp divide uh, because there is really, in fact, not a sharp divide uh, between this, this libertarianism and social conservatism. Uh, evangelicals, uh, evangelicals on the right in general, uh, are fiercely protective of their personal rights, their individual rights. Uh, they also recognize, however, that uh, 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 there has to be, of course, uh, a certain moral centeredness uh, in which individuals can thrive uh, as individuals within their families, within their community life. So there is a, a built-in social conservatism as well that 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 holds together this, this libertarian vision uh, of, of the world. This is all the most, uh, all the more evident uh, in the, the oil men that I study, uh, all the more evident in the oil patches, the oil patch churches that I study. Uh, they do not see this uh, divide. Uh, they see the values of, of again, a, a fiercely free market uh, and uh, social conservatism as, as shared uh, as twin pillars, really, uh, of their political agenda and of the political necessities of their campaign. Great. So, um, shifting our gaze to the the present time, uh, obviously, President Trump was elected in two thousand and sixteen uh, with overwhelming support from evangelical Christians. I think eighty percent voted for him in the end. And uh, also, he's then gone on to deregulate substantially many of the environmental uh, policies that were introduced during the Obama period. Um, does you, how does uh, wildcat Christianity fit in uh, to this this moment where we have both um, strong support uh, for Trump and also for, uh, environmental deregulation? It's very certainly it's very much at the heart uh, of, of this uh, of this. Trump moment, and uh, you know, Mike Pence, for instance, was just in the Permian Basin, West Texas, in, in late April, uh, atop uh, a new oil rig of an independent energy company, announced that uh, you know, the three pillars of American greatness were faith, freedom, and vast natural resources. And so, this is really the language of wildcat Christianity uh, that I uh, show throughout the 20th century, and it's, it's culminated, one could say, in this Trump moment. Uh, what Trump has done is really revamped the America First Energy program of Ronald Reagan that I spoke about just a few minutes ago, uh, and really has used that, that uh, blueprint uh, to recapture, to consolidate uh, the soul of, of Southwestern evangelicalism in particular. Uh, he has, again, as you say, uh, not just uh, proclaimed an American First Energy policy. Uh, he's not simply sent out, uh, you know, uh, members of his administration to talk God and, and, and oil extraction and gas extraction to the people of the oil patch, the people of the Southwest. He's also acted on that. Uh, he has 
Um, of course, deregulated uh, almost on a daily basis. We get uh, new news uh, of, of uh, kind of the deregulation of Western lands. Uh, all of this is, is greatly exciting and, and empowering uh, to uh, independent oil men, especially. In fact, uh, there's a story uh, that emerged, I believe, about two months ago of, uh, of a tape recording of the uh, of, of an annual meeting of the Independent Petroleum Association of America, at which point uh, independent oil men gathered were actually laughing at the, the degree of access they have to this presidency. Uh, so this is, this is a moment of great celebration uh, among uh, independent oil men. And, and on the oil patch itself, uh, Donald Trump really represents their interests, not just their social values, but also their economic interests. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Darren. Uh, just one final question. This might be a little bit uh, too soon since your book is published this month, but do you have any plans for your, your next research project? Uh, well, yes, this is kind of a, a moment of uh, a little bit of anxiety. You're never quite sure uh, what's going to happen next. You know, when I, uh, when I started this oil book, it was actually before the first one was done. I had, uh, so I had something to look forward to. Something I was anxious to get at. Uh, I'm not quite there at this juncture. Uh, I have a few ideas that I'm pursuing. Uh, one of them would be kind of a brief follow up uh, to this book, and it would be more of a kind of a travel log meets comparative history. Uh, what I would propose is a, is a study of, of a number of global oil patches to see if there is such a thing as, as oil patch religion, uh, universals of what I see in the Southwest. Uh, and it, would, you know, it strikes me, for instance, that uh, across almost across the board, the oil patches of the world tend to be the most conservative uh, in China in terms of religion and, and politics, whether it's uh, Saudi Arabia and Oman, whether it's the oil section of Norway, which is the most evangelical section of that country, uh, whether it's Indonesia. Uh, so it, it strikes me that there's something at work here, petrol capitalism produces a similar worldview based on uh, you know, the boom-bust cycles uh, of oil. Uh, there's something that uh, is similar, uh, you know, so there's similarities between Odessa, Texas, as I say, and Oman in some regards. Uh, a strong belief in an all-powerful God who gives and takes, uh, but who's always there. Uh, a very kind of powerful eschatological view of the world and understanding that the world uh, will... Uh, devolve into crisis, um, salvation coming only through, once again, an all-powerful God. Uh, so that, that's one project that I'm considering. A second one, uh, which I will probably uh, get get to here in the coming weeks and months, is a, a micro-history of a resort town uh, in California. Uh, I won't get into details, but uh, uh, during the 1950s and 1960s, this town undergoes uh, a series of environmental crises drought dries up the lake uh, on which this town's economy is based. Uh, and with this uh, environmental crisis uh, comes a heightened uh, extremism of politics, of religion. Uh, deaths occur, uh, a number of uh, very interesting court cases. So I'm, I'm curious to see how, once again, if we look at land, uh, if we look at environment, uh, if we look at weather and climate, how does that affect uh, the um, religiosity of a place and, and by extension, uh, get uh, kind of funneled into uh, a politics of extremism? Something that, we, of course, we're going to be uh, more familiar with going forward 
uh, with climate change and so forth, and that's already been witnessed in Africa and elsewhere. So uh, those are two projects that I'm considering, and uh, hopefully one of them will, will grab, grab me here, and, and I'll happily invest uh, for the next few years. But uh, I'm, also, I'm also eager to try something uh, a little bit different. Uh, this, this book uh, took a number of years and took a lot of energy, and I, I'm not quite ready to, to dive into a, another project of, of this scale. Great. Well, they, they both sound like fascinating projects, and I very much look forward to seeing uh, whatever you produce next. Uh, thank you for being on the program today, Darren. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It was, it was a real privilege.